This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Unholier Than Now is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Now, more than ever, hiring can be hard for managers all over. Monica Starks can relate. She needed to hire for a pivotal role at her construction company, GS Group, but was having a tough time finding the right person, especially with so many candidates out there. So she switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com unholy. That's how Monica found Lamont Jenkins. She said that ZipRecruiter sent Lamont's profile to her around five minutes after she posted her job because he was a great match for the role. Through ZipRecruiter, Monica's company has hired everyone from accountants to project managers to field scientists. But Monica's not the only employer who loves ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself how ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster and easier. Try it now for free. That's right, for free at ZipRecruiter.com unholy. That's ZipRecruiter.com U-N-H-O-L-Y. ZipRecruiter.com unholy. From Crooked Media, this is Unholier Than Now. I'm your host, Philip Picardi. Today, we have a special, if somber, episode prepared, honoring the over 200,000 American lives lost to the coronavirus pandemic. But before we get there, let's take a quick moment to discuss a story that's about another kind of American tragedy. On Friday, September 11th, the New York Times op-ed columnist Paul Krugman tweeted a seriously alarming piece of revisionist history. Overall, Americans took 9-11 pretty calmly, he wrote. Notably, there wasn't a mass outbreak of anti-Muslim sentiment and violence, which could all too easily have happened. While George W. Bush was a terrible president, to his credit, he tried to calm prejudice, not feed it. As you might expect, Krugman was immediately corrected by what felt like all of Twitter. In just four days, nearly 36,000 people responded to his comment, sharing their own accounts of the horrifying rise of Islamophobia that followed the attacks on September 11th. One such person was my friend Zara Rahim, a communications and political strategist from New York, who noted that, in the aftermath of the tragedy, her mosque was burnt down. Her tweet went viral in a matter of hours. Zara, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Zara, I'm really sorry to hear that your mosque burnt down after 9-11. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened and how you knew the attack was a hate crime? Sure. I definitely <laughs> was not trying to go viral, I think, which is important to note because my statement was simply, my mosque burnt down. <laughs> so I wasn't really saying anything too prolific other than the truth. And so the mosque that I was referring to was the mosque that I grew up closest to uh, in Port St. Lucie, Florida. And in this incident, the gentleman who burned the mosque down or, um, you know, attempted to burn the entire thing down was somebody who was doing so in honor of the anniversary of 9-11. And so 
you know, I, I think that prior to that, after 9-11, so many of our lives changed. And Paul Krugman's tweet, which is the one that you're referring to, I just couldn't believe uh, what he was saying and also how out of touch and ahistorical it was. And so, yeah. Yeah, I know his tweet was asinine, as are many tweets from New York Times op-ed writers. I don't know what is going on over there. (laughs) But you also called his tweet white revisionism. And I think that's an important distinction that you made, right? This is ahistorical, but it's specifically, it's rewriting history from the perspective of a white point of view. What did white people miss from the aftermath of September 11th that they wouldn't have understood if they don't have Muslim people who are in their neighborhoods, their communities, their networks? Yeah, I think... What was most interesting about what he said, I think it gave everybody, I think, that has any sort of marginalized identity, just a reminder of how much it is in our lives that we face that comes from a white, cis, hetero lens. White revisionism to me is simply when a white person claims something as the truth And because of their identity and who they are, there really is no pushback. And I think that is what is really the difference between 9-11 when we didn't have internet culture and we didn't have social media to now when you say something that crazy and out of pocket that you're like, wait a second, like, were you living in the same world that I lived in? Because I, I, it's wild. And so, you know, the response is, to his tweet, I think we're really a profound example of how much and how for how long people have been getting away with this and that we really shouldn't allow that to happen anymore. Obviously, it's frustrating to see prominent journalists like Kregman, you know, erase these experiments, revise history in this way, especially working for the paper of record, so to speak. But you worked for political outreach uh, specifically uh, for the Muslim community for Hillary Clinton. And I'm wondering, you know, from your vantage point, what are people, journalists, political candidates getting wrong right now about outreach to and coverage of Muslim people? You know, from since 2001 and even before then, politicians have only spoken to Muslim Americans through the lens of security. And it is... Muslims are good people. Muslims helped the FBI. Muslims, you know, were, you know, the 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 greatest asset that the CIA had after 9-11. But it, it again reflects a very white lens. And I think that time and time, every four years, particularly in presidential elections and general elections, we see this very specific lens, which is like, you deserve all of the rights of Americans. And it's like, wait, who are Americans? They're talking about white people. And so, you know, I just wish people would acknowledge again, the fact that Muslims are not a monolith. They're black, they're queer, they're converts, they're white, they're Asian, they are trans. There are many people um, that make up this community of, by the way, you know, billions around the world and millions here in this country. Um, that if they took more time to focus and realize that they care about healthcare, education, the economy, just as much as the next guy, then, then I think it would make a massive, massive difference. For sure. In closing, Zara, I'm wondering what advice you might offer for newsrooms to not completely piss off and misrepresent Muslim people like Paul Krugman in the New York Times did. 
journalists, you write what you know, and when you don't know, you ask questions. And I think that it is so imperative that we have a real discussion um, and continue to have a real discussion about who are the people who are telling our stories and carrying our water? Who are the people who are editing these stories? Who are the people who are making sure that the question that might not be at the forefront of your mind because it is not your lived experience has the opportunity to tell that story? And so that's all we can hope for. And, you know, there are more good journalists than bad journalists and, but not all of them have Nobel prizes. So, um, (laughs) you know, I, I leave you with that, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I just, I think I hope people don't try to impose something that they don't know for nothing. Zara, thank you so much for your candor uh, and sharing with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Now for today's big story. The United States reached a milestone we once thought was unimaginable, 200,000 people dead from the coronavirus. It has been a year filled with death. First, the shock of it, and then the shock of how we all got used to it. We've already heard a lot from the doctors battling the front lines of this pandemic. So this week, we wanted to chat with some of the other hospital workers who have seen the worst of the coronavirus. Hospital chaplains quite literally help people understand and plan their deaths. They also help explain the grieving process to loved ones and family members. Hallie Diechidue has been a chaplain for over 20 years, but they say nothing could have prepared them for the way their job would change once the pandemic hit. Hallie, thanks for joining us. In a non-pandemic world before the coronavirus, what was your day-to-day like in hospitals or in these, in these facilities? So I would visit someone who was either struggling or searching, yearning, wanting to explore, you know, do a life review. Sometimes I would visit someone who was dying. Sometimes I would help navigate a difficult family visit. Other parts of my day, I I lead services in our facility. That's pre-pandemic. Now, I understand that your job, especially um, contending with death and helping people understand their beliefs around death, must have gotten a lot harder when the pandemic hit. Can you tell me, particularly in the early days of the coronavirus, how your job as you knew it came to change? You know, there's generally some preparation for a visit and for what I'm going to offer someone or how I'm going to be with someone. And the pandemic really threw that out the window because no one knew what we were heading into. No one knew how the disease was going to manifest in our people or in any people. Also, there was this veneer of fear over everything. So where someone can call on me for a visit because they want to discuss death or they want to discuss how they see themselves living until the end of their life, there's not always a fear. People don't go into death all the time afraid, but people do go into a pandemic afraid. And so this overlay of fear was not just the people who were sick, was the people who were afraid of getting sick. 
It was the staff. It was everybody. And on top of that layer of fear, there's also the physical manifestation of fear. I know there are barriers now between you and patients that in the past, you may very well have reached to touch or hold, and now that's ill-advised. So how has PPE transformed your interactions with your patients? It was really, it was horrible, I have to say. I never realized how much I rely on touch, even if it's a hand on a shoulder or leaning against the bed and having a real physical presence, using my physicality as a comforting presence, how I used my body and my facial expressions, my smile, the softening of my cheeks to convey a calm with people. I wasn't able to do that because I was in three layers of plastic and two pairs of gloves and two masks that covered all but my eyes. Then there was a face shield and so there was this weird reflection between the face shield and my glasses and then a head covering. And so I felt very disconnected from my body, from being present. And then the person in the bed couldn't relate to me as a person. So all of that changed. And it also changed for the families of the people who had loved ones in the hospital who were ostensibly very sick with coronavirus or dying of coronavirus. Did you interact with uh, many of these families? Did you hear from them? So we got a stack of iPads and we were on the phones with family members. We were facilitating FaceTime and Zoom with our patients, between our patients and their families. And that was really uncharted territory. How do you mean? On a screen, it sounds sort of simplistic, but it's two-dimensional. So there's no reaching out of a person from the screen. And my people are old. And talking to a screen is not anywhere in their schema. There's nothing familiar about that to them. You know, my four-year-old is a digital native, but but these hundred-year-olds are not. And so they're trying to come to grips with feeling very sick and being very sick and being attended to by these giant baked potatoes. And right. And by baked potatoes, I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to the hazmat suits you all are wearing, correct? Right. Yeah. That we were all saying, yes, if you feel, you know what a baked potato feels like because the sweat is running down your back and you're, you know, overheating and everything is steaming up, mm-hmm. but we didn't look like people to them. Right. So it removes the humanity of your work. Yes. Mm. Yes. Well, I understand that there's one story of a Catholic patient that seems to have stayed with you and and maybe is an example of how you as a chaplain really worked to preserve the humanity of this moment. Can you tell me a little bit about that patient and that experience? So one of our first patients that we got from the outside that had COVID was actually a retired Catholic priest Mm. and he was dying. And we had, the protocol was that nobody was coming in. So even the diocese was not sending in priests to do the sacrament of the sick. Me being Jewish, 
I, I'm not qualified to do the sacrament of the sick. But we tried to meet with him where he was and where we were offering the best we could. Several of our nurses are Catholic. So I gathered them, like you said, in, in keeping with our humanity, we were connecting as spiritual beings, offering what comfort and love we could. And the doctor on the case called using her own cell phone, called his sister. And we asked her to share stories about him. And she had written a goodbye to him at the suggestion of the doctor. She read her goodbye to him. And I, I asked him if he had anything to say to his sister. And he said, goodbye, Anne. She, she said he was always a man of few words. <laughs> and so we, we laughed and we, you know, we held one another. And I asked his sister if she might lead us in some of his favorite prayers. And I think it was the first time she was asked to lead. You know, it was always him leading. He's a priest. And he smiled and sort of relaxed into the bed. And she recited some of the prayers that are very familiar for Catholics, the Lord's Prayer and Psalm 23. And our staff, our nurses and nursing aides recited with her. And it was an incredible moment. It just brought us all to the same place where there wasn't anything between us separating us. There wasn't the PPE even though there was. And there wasn't the difference of religion, even though there was. And there wasn't the difference of our jobs. So it was really, it transcended everything in that moment. One of the things that made the coronavirus pandemic so difficult in particular was the feeling uh, that many families had that their loved ones were effectively dying alone because the wards were closed off to outside visitors. And I know that that must have heightened the importance of your job during this moment. But I wonder, you know, there's nothing worse than the thought of your mother, your sibling, your loved one, your spouse, dying in solitude, right? That's something that all of us, for better or for worse, come to fear. Do you think, as a chaplain who has witnessed and been present for so much death. Do you think that any of us ever die alone? Do you think that your patients died alone? I, I don't. And I actually, there was an article written that said something about the number of deaths we had and how all those people died alone. And I, I responded with a letter to our CEO. And I, I said, these people in our care, we had people who died of COVID and we had people who died of old age. It's what we do. And they died at the end of a life well-lived and they were loved and cared for by their families and they were loved and cared for by us because you can't do this job. You can't be in this field if you don't open your heart and love people. And I feel like no one was actually alone during this time. There was always someone by the bedside. There was always someone caring and loving. Mm. I hate to be blunt or sound cynical, but I also want to be realistic. You, you know, this pandemic has in so many ways showcased the very worst 
of us, right? Our roadblocks and access to care, the way the virus disproportionately impacts specifically people of color, the way we value or devalue our so-called essential workers. And I guess, and I'm sorry to put this so plainly, but how do you know all of that and, and hold all of that, but also keep the faith that there is a higher being out there? It's a great question. Some days I don't know. It's a great question because how do we keep the faith in the face of death every day? I work a lot with people with dementia and five minutes after I've been there, they don't remember that I was there. And I can go see someone and they'll stare right through me. And then when I leave the room, they'll scream and scream. And did I make a difference? Why bother? Why bother to go into that room if they're just going to forget that you were there for those five minutes? So it's similar in the face of so much death. For me, it's not an option not to do it. If I could be there for a hundred people, it's like that story of the little girl on the, on the seashore and she's picking up uh, starfish because she knows they'll die if they're out of the water and she's tossing them back into the water. And this old man comes up to her and he says, what are you doing? The, 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 the seashore is loaded with, with these starfish. You can't possibly save everyone. Hundreds of thousands of them will die. You're not making any kind of difference. And the little girl holds up the starfish in her hand and she tosses it out into the sea and she says, I made a difference for that one. So that's how you have to see it. If I think about the 200,000, I'll lose hope. But if I focus on the ones in front of me and do whatever I can, if I can affect those in front of me, then, then I've done something. Does that make sense? It does. You know, on, on the other hand, I also, I feel the ramifications of COVID continually impacting people who society needs to care for more. And it keeps making me wonder about, you know, if there is a higher power, then what the hell are they doing? You know, because this virus is continually falling along socioeconomic and racial lines that feel extremely unjust. And so, you know, a big part of me, a big part of me is asking if God's out there, then where the hell are they? You know? So, so I hear that. I hear that, but I also, I see COVID falling and the ones that are being responded to are not the, the poor and the native and the people of color. That's, that's on humanity, not on God. Hallie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was great talking to you. Up next, a chaplain who says family is the best medicine. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be challenging, but ZipRecruiter makes it fast and easy. One CEO, Ali, needed to hire for a multifaceted role at his wallpaper company, Walls Need Love. He was looking for someone who was the right fit for his team and culture, but his search was slow going. So he turned to ZipRecruiter. 
ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies the right people for your job and actively invites them to apply, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com unholy. That's how Ali found Savannah Ray. Ali said Savannah's skills and experience were a great match for the role. Plus, she applied within a few days after he posted the job. Through ZipRecruiter, Ali has hired everyone from his head of marketing to his sales director to his lead graphic designer. But Ali's not the only employer who loves ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself how ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster and easier. Try it now for free. That's right, for free at ZipRecruiter.com unholy. That's ZipRecruiter.com U-N-H-O-L-Y. ZipRecruiter.com unholy. Okay, you guys, many of you know that I just moved to Los Angeles and I can only tell you that it is such a relief to be able to go to sleep every single night in beautiful bed linens from Parachute Home. I am obsessed with these things and I have been for quite some time now. That's why I'm excited to say that Unholier Than Now is brought to you by Parachute. We believe that when we take care of our home, it takes care of us. So what does home mean to you? How have your parachute items contributed to that feeling? Parachute's mission is to make you feel at home. Home is the most comforting word there is. It's where we go to recharge, wash off the day, and rest up for tomorrow. Parachute's everyday essentials are designed in Los Angeles and responsibly manufactured by the world's best craftspeople. They only use the finest materials to make long-lasting, quality home essentials. Parachute linen is light, airy, and casually elegant, giving it timeless appeal. Made in a family-owned factory in Portugal, your linen sheets are made without any harmful chemicals or synthetic softeners. So nothing comes between you and Parachute's naturally comfortable fabrics. Visit ParachuteHome.com unholy for free shipping and returns on Parachute's premium quality, very comfortable home essentials. That's ParachuteHome.com unholy. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Now, back to the show. It sort of goes without saying that dealing with overwhelming amounts of death can be hard on the psyche. But what happens when you start to notice that many of the people who are dying also happen to look like you? Stephanie Ramos is a chaplain in Los Angeles where Latinx people are twice as likely to contract COVID-19 than their white counterparts. Even though her work got harder, Stephanie insists she never lost her faith. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. I'm wondering if you can start by explaining how your day-to-day work as a chaplain changed when COVID-19 started to hit Los Angeles. You know, many months ago, it started off that I heard that somewhere in China, something was going on. And then it seemed to move across Europe to Italy and to uh, London. And then it seemed to cross the ocean and go into New York And next thing I knew, it was on the other side of the wall here. And that's when, of course, we were preparing. We have a good administrative team here, uh, medical staff, and we began to prepare. And then you began, because it was around us, so we had to begin to wear masks and PPE, get uh, accustomed to PPE, And then also there was a change. There was a protocol in visitors coming in and where even those who were dying, 
no longer had their loved ones at the bedside. Sometimes it was through FaceTime, um, or sometimes it was outside of the glass, but it was only one person. And then, of course, there was the change for myself in, in that I could no longer go in these rooms, you know, to talk to the patients. But instead, I was now doing telechaplaincy to those patients I was able to talk to. Um, and then moving out towards telechaplaincy to their families. So things have changed drastically. Wow. And do you feel like that impacted the quality of your in- interactions with your patients? Yes, because I needed to find find other ways, you know, and tuning in my ear when I was going to the telechaplaincy and to be present to them, because that's what our journey is as a as a chaplain, to accompany them in their sacred stories. Mm. Do you feel like touch and physical comfort is a, is a key part of chaplaincy? Is that something that you often make a part of your practice? Oh, yes. It's very important, you know, to hold their hand, um, uh, just be present, the eye contact. I always have said, you know, the best medicine is always family presence to help them to feel better. But right now they're not getting that. Right. I also imagine it makes your job a lot harder, the fact that these people, uh, many of them feel like they are, you know, for lack of a better phrase, dying alone, right? And that's a a very human fear is the thought of dying alone or without people, you know, especially your loved ones around you. How are you helping people cope with that reality during this time? You know, it's not even praying with them unless, of course, they want prayer, but it's just listening to where their heart is in the sacred story Hmm. and just being present to them. You know, I've had where a patient, she didn't have COVID, but it was her birthday. So she was a Latina. So I came in with my phone singing Mananitas and bringing her some flowers to help celebrate her day to bring her a smile. But there's constant stories that they share with you, their concerns about their family, you know, how they're going to get supported, you know, the res- some of them, you know, responsibilities that they have supporting their families and they can't support them because they don't have jobs. And, you know, even some of our nursing staff are taking double shifts because many of their family members are no longer working. So it isn't just the patients, but it's also mm. listening to the medical staff and those around us. Sure. I know you've seen a lot of COVID patients, but I understand there was a particular case of a pregnant woman that has really stuck with you. Can you tell me a little bit about her? Well, she came in as a high risk. She was pregnant. She's very high stressed. And during the month I journeyed with her, she didn't have COVID at the time. And her life just changed around being here. You know, she became more positive. Um, She'd even color. She'd take her little walks that she could. And then came time when she had her baby and the baby was smaller. So it had to stay here in the NICU. And when the baby, you know, and mom was sent to a shelter with her family to live. And it is there in that shelter that her family and others got COVID. And um, they were sent to one of those medical hotel hospitals And uh, they had to stay there and she couldn't pick up her baby. The baby had to stay here in the hospital for two weeks more. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I would call her every other day to see how she was doing and to see how her family was doing. And then I'd 
check on the baby or but she had access to the nursing staff you know would tell her how the baby was doing but just that connection you know she just oh it was really hard on that family but she was reunited with her baby right yes she was she was yes and how was that um that was a beautiful moment you know for her to just hold her son in her arms again yes that sounds really special but you know just communicating her between the hospital and myself, you know, um, kept her going. Right. That's a really hopeful story. And I, and I love that one. But I, I also know that, you know, coronavirus has disproportionately impacted people of color. And the LA Times reported just a couple months ago that Latinx people are reportedly twice as likely as white people to contract the virus in Los Angeles County. You are a Latina woman. You told us you're a proud Latina woman. I just am wondering what it's been like for you to watch this unfold. It's been very tough. You know, I am the mother of six children and the grandmother of six children. Wow. And my husband and I are in ministry, but my family was very concerned about me being here. And I've been told many a times, (laughs) there was a time it was almost daily, you know, why are you there? Make sure you take care of yourself. You know, it was just a constant, but they knew deep down and they told me this, you know, mom, we know, we know you love what you do. And for that reason, we want you to know that we support you in, in what you're doing, but we just want to make sure you're safe, Mm -hmm. you know? So when we had a situation here where one of our chaplains became COVID positive, you know, my first reaction was, uh, I need to get tested because I was near that person and I was tested and I was negative. But just in your heart, you just go, you know, my family. That was my first thought. Oh, my God, my family is going to say mom. (laughs) But they are concerned, you know, and other friends are concerned, but they are also my support. And very important for every chaplain and everyone, you need to have self-care. You need to take care of yourself because, yes, you're dealing with an emotional a great emotional situation every day. You know, I'll go home and they'll say, how was your day? And in my head, I'll rush through a lot of things I've gone through and I'll just say, it was okay, it was okay. You know, because I know they couldn't, a lot of people cannot handle with some of the things that we go through here emotionally uh, and what we see. You know, I have a very strong faith in God and uh, I always tell the, the patients, even when I come in, I said, you know, before I get in here, God's already here, you know, and, and I've been thrown out of rooms. You know, people tell me to get out. They don't want to see me and I'll say, fine. And I'll go back the next day and say hello. And they'll want to just tell me everything. So mm. it's uh, day by day. <laughs> I guess to, to be more pointed about the question, how do you square your faith in God with witnessing the disparities in healthcare that are impacting certain people in this country more than others? You know, um, we're in our faith here. And so I just, I understand, you know, what the news is reporting and how people of color are more susceptible to COVID. But I guess I, I just put everyone in one big basket and and uh, just go with my faith and it's sad to see, you know, what's going on. I mean, I've had some dear friends, one just this week, pass away of COVID. I'm so sorry. And it, it's um, it's painful to see them go. 
it's just something that's going on in the world right now. You know, the earth is hurting. And, um, you know, I get a little upset, been out of shape with people who tell me, you know, this isn't real or what I see in the news. And they say, oh, no, this isn't real. This is a joke. And and I want to bring them and put them in front of the glass to see, you know, look, sure. this is a human being, you know, that's that's suffering from this horrible virus that we don't even understand yet. Yeah. My fiance is an emergency medicine doctor working in LA right now. And he says that when he can tell when some patients come in and, and they're the patients who watch Fox News and he can see it in their eyes when they realize that they've been lied to, right? When they realize they are sick and that this pandemic is really happening around them. Even though they may disagree with him, they may disagree with his equality and his rights, right? As a, as a gay man, as a black man, but that he still would never wish this illness upon anyone. And that is a, it is a really tricky thing. Sometimes I guess people need the front row seat to, to see what's happening. Yeah, and uh, it's pretty tough. Yeah, I can imagine. But, you know, we have a good medical staff here at LACUSC, good administration that are working all together. We're working all together to get through this. I know that also your work is about explaining or, or helping people prepare for death, um, helping people get comfortable uh, with death and making decisions around their own death. I guess to flip that a little bit, I'm wondering what being surrounded by death has taught you. That, that can be a spiritual question. It can, it can be a literal question, however you want to interpret it. Well, you know, since I was a child, my mother was the one who inspired me to, to do this. I tell her. She doesn't believe me, but I tell her that. Because since I was a child, my mother would take me to um, hospital visits with her. Uh, when maybe an aunt or an uncle or a friend was sick, and then she'd make friends with the next person in the in the room, the other patient, and we'd come back and see that patient. And, and so I got very comfortable. And death was always a part of life. I had a cousin who was 18, and he had a brain tumor, so we would go visit him on Sundays up in Ventura County. And it was just talking to him or praying with him, but more just listening to him and what he was going through and how important life was for him. He did pass, but that moment impressed my life. And then as I've gone on, um, those who I've loved and cared for have passed away, you know, and um, their lives are important. My grandson passed away four years ago. He was... Um, oh, gosh. He was born and he was ill and he lived um, 40 hours. And just to see in the hospital that we were at, I mean, I felt even the security guard was with us <laughs> on this in the hospital in Pasadena. But it just this, this compassion, you know, for a family who was losing their child. It was my daughter's first son. And they allowed all about 30 of us, you know, um, my daughter, our side, and then my son-in-law's side, to come together and to pray and to be present there in the hallway as my grandson passed, you know. I believe in my faith, you know, there's everlasting life. Others may not believe that, but just to allow them to talk, you know, because when I come into the room, I, I say, um, you know, I'm here for your emotional support, not just your spiritual because some people, you know, they all have different backgrounds, and I respect that. You know, I respect that. 
but I, I just want to listen to them because yes, they, they, we're all going to go. We know that we're all going to go. Right. We are unfortunately approaching a major milestone in America, one that many people believed was inconceivable at the beginning of this pandemic, which is that 200,000 people will soon be reported to have died of the coronavirus. And it is so important to find meaning so that we can all keep going, right? It's it's important to find meaning in the in the lives and deaths of these people so that they didn't die in vain. At the same time, this figure is so astonishing and it's so heartbreaking. I just wonder how it is possible to keep the faith when this is our reality. I just, I know my God is there. My God is present. And I don't have answers. And it's astounding of all these who are going, just like in the wars that have gone, in all the numbers that have passed. But we just hold tight, you know. And I tell people, I don't have the answer, but I'm here with you. Stephanie, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. It's an honor. A lot of the themes the chaplains touched on today were about coping, finding peace and faith among so much death. This is profoundly noble, considering that many of the 200,000 deaths in our country were entirely preventable, if only we had a competent president or an administration that believed plain scientific fact. One of the most difficult parts of the pandemic, at least as I see it, is the numbness. When tragedy happens so constantly and at such a drastic rate, we start to lose touch with the gravity of it altogether. And perhaps social distancing also caused us to lose our sense of connectedness, the reality that all of this is happening in our backyards and to our very own communities. So in this moment where isolation and loneliness can feel so acute, one of the positive things about faith is that it reminds us that we are connected. That's the goal of The Blast, a coordinated effort across Jewish communities in the Washington, D.C. area to celebrate Rosh Hashanah, or the Jewish New Year. Today kicks off the holiday, and in a pre-pandemic world, Jewish people would gather together in a synagogue to sound the shofar, which is a cleaned-out ram's horn. But this year, Rabbi Sarah Karinsky and her fellow rabbis have organized an outdoor synchronized blast of the shofar. Here she is explaining why blowing the shofar is so important. It's a spiritual alarm clock. Like it's asking us to wake up to something, to something in ourselves or to something in the world. You know, when the shofar blows, I sort of say to myself, or it's even more profound than that. I sort of hear a voice saying to me, you know, wake up, wake up. Like what is it in the world that I need to open up to or be more attentive to. This spiritual alarm clock celebrates the birth of the world and also a day to reflect and renew. Thinking about new beginnings certainly feels like the only way we can continue to make it through. Unholier Than Thou is a Crooked Media production. Our producers are Adriana Cargill and Elisa Gutierrez with production support from Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takuya Suzawa and our executive producers are Lyra Smith and Sarah Geismer. Thanks for listening. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... 
Yeah, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed.